1 Corinthians 2 showed us that God gave man a spirit, that we can receive the spirit of God, which enables us to grasp the spiritual things of God, and there is a spirit of this world. We also saw that man's spirit can be communicated with even without the man being aware that this is going on. We also saw in last week's sermon that a great deal of spiritual activity is going on. And sometimes that spiritual activity involves the destiny even of great nations. And especially we saw that God employs angels and sometimes even demons to carry out commands from him. We saw that the primary means for Satan to manipulate us was through disinformation and affecting our attitudes. Now the purpose for this is to move our reasoning processes toward satisfaction of the self. Now this is especially perverse because satisfaction of the self is not often by itself intrinsically evil. But putting self before God and others is. Now that is his aim, that is, trying to push our reasoning processes toward satisfaction of the self, that is his aim because this is the essence of sin. Now he is called in Ephesians, the second chapter, as the prince of the power of the air. Now apparently in most cases, the manipulation occurs in an indirect way. The air is surcharged with his spirit, and we are by nature tuned in to his wavelength. Now, the only way to avoid manipulation is to be enabled to tune him out. Now, perceiving that we are being influenced is not always easy because yielding to his influence is what we have been doing since we were born. We've been doing it all of our life. And therefore, it feels natural to us to go in that direction. But what is natural to man is enmity against God, according to Romans 8 and verse 7. Even if we are unable to catch it when it is occurring, it will still produce fruit, and we should then be able to catch it by being able to see the evidence of the fruit that is produced. Now, he, of course, is always attempting to get us to sin. But even though we may sin, we still may not catch it. That is because sin has become so ingrained as a part of our life, we don't recognize it as sin. But somewhere along the line, fruit is going to be produced. Even if we don't catch it, that is Satan's influence when we sin. Somewhere along the line, other fruit is going to be produced that will give us evidence that we have been manipulated. Now, you recall in that sermon that I said that evidences that he is at work in our life, in other work, other people's lives, in institutions of which we are a part, in cultures in which we live, are confusion, division, and warfare. I also stated that it's not necessarily always in that order. However, that is the usual progression. Now, this whole mess on earth began when vanity began to arise in Satan, or Lucifer, I should say, over his beauty. Now, I take the word beauty not just to refer to his appearance, 
but also to refer with all of those abilities, including a tremendous intelligence, the wisdom, and all of those other things, skills that God built into him. Now, somewhere along the line, I don't remember, or I don't know whether it was one year after God created him, a hundred years after, or 10,000 years after God created him, somewhere along the line, Satan told himself a lie which he believed. And that lie was that he felt that he was not getting his due. You see, he was so intelligent, he was so beautiful, he was so talented that he was in a position inferior to what he should rightfully have. Now that is impossible because God is intrinsically love. It is a part of his nature. It's impossible for him to treat anybody wrong, just as it is impossible for God to sin in any way. He is always looking out for the best interests of all concerned, individuals or the group or institution. And so Satan, because of the urging of his vanity, told himself a lie which he believed. Now it burned in him so that he couldn't hold it in himself any longer. And then he told himself another lie as to what the solution was to be. He began to enlist other angels into his feelings that they too were being mistreated and that the solution was to attack God, knock him off his throne, and take over, and thus they would be in the rightful position and be able to make the rule. Now, as this grew, this insurrection grew, it divided them from God, and eventually warfare occurred. Now, turn with me to Revelation, the 20th chapter. Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, 7, and 8. Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, 7, and 8. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hands. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Our understanding is, of course, very clear from Revelation 20, that this occurs at the beginning of that 1,000-year period. Now in verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as of the sand of the sea. Now I turn to this scripture because I want us to be impressed with how effective he is in his nefarious schemes, that even after 1,000 years of not having his influence and mankind living under the government of God so that men are fully capable of comparing properly, he is still able to deceive and lead people into warfare against God. Now, I'll tell you, he is the greatest salesman of all time. Now, as I mentioned, 
at the beginning of this series, the motivation for this series came from Mr. Herbert Armstrong's 1978 article entitled, What You May Not Know. Now, what Mr. Armstrong's point, his purpose in that article was him trying to exhort us or to give us understanding so that we might appreciate our vulnerability. The article was written because Mr. Armstrong felt that there were many in the ministry. It was aimed at the ministry primarily, not at the church member, the lay member. It was aimed at the ministry because he felt that many in the ministry did not appreciate that they too either had been deceived or were capable of being deceived. Apparently, some had expressed to him, I mean some in the ministry had expressed to him that Satan didn't deceive me. And so the article was written so that we would take heed lest we felt that we were standing. So the importance is to you and me then is don't get so proud that you think that you can handle him easily because he has a great number of tools coming at us. But yet on the other hand, there is no need for us to be overly concerned about him either where we are looking for demons behind every tree, every bush as the cause of every problem that we have. We can do enough damage ourselves. But we do need to understand that he is around, that he is still active, and if we aren't aware, we can be vulnerable. Now turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts 5, and verses 1 through 3. I think that'll be good enough. Acts 5, verses 1 through 3. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? In verse 4, he tells them that they had lied to God. And in verse 5, Ananias dropped dead. Now, here are two church members who apparently did not take Satan into consideration. They listened to a lie and were divided, first of all, from God's church and then from life itself. Now, what did Satan do? Now, he moved them toward self-satisfaction to the point, now here was the actual sin, that they lied to take credit for a greater sacrifice than they actually made. They lied to take credit for a greater sacrifice than they actually made. Now the sad part of this is that no one asked them to donate the entire sale price of the piece of land. What happened was they committed themselves to it and then undoubtedly began to feel put on. Hey, Sapphira, that's too much money. Or, hey, Ananias, I agree with you. Maybe they began to think, we didn't expect that we would get so much money from the sale of this. And that is too much to donate to the common cause here. They began to think undoubtedly of other uses that they could put the money to. We could buy clothing. We could improve a part of our house. We could buy another piece of land as an investment and reap even greater rewards from it. 
But you see, what they had done is they, they had apparently already told those who were in charge of the collection here that they would contribute the entire amount of the sale, and then when the time came to give the contribution, they only gave a part of it, but let on like this was the entire sale price. And the difference between the two, they kept for themselves. Now, I wonder who it was who led them to dare to lie. Now, do you see the process? See, Satan has modus operandi, and he is always going to move us in the direction of self-satisfaction at the expense of obedience to God or at the expense of service to God or at the expense of service to others so that we elevate ourselves over the other. Is that not what Satan did? In his own mind, his vanity elevated him greater than the position that God had given to him, and it then began to work on his mind that he had to do something about it. Now, this process keeps repeating itself over and over again. Now, let's go back to the book of Matthew. And this is an interesting, interesting circumstance. Matthew, the 16th chapter, beginning in verse 13. Matthew 16 and in verse 13. Now, we need to see what occurred here in its context. Jesus came into the reason of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Well, some say that you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now let's jump down to verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and raised again the third day. Then Peter, this was the man who just said to Jesus, you are the Messiah. Peter took him aside. The indication is that it was something done in, in urgency, you know, that there was a deep feeling and perhaps even a, a, a bit of jostling. I don't mean that it was done meanly at all, not at all. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned. It's almost as if Peter grabbed him maybe by the shoulder and to get his attention and turned him part way. And then in response to what Jesus or Peter said, Jesus fully turned and faced him like he was face to face, you know, right in your face kind of thing. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Very interesting. Now, Peter clearly believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But what was wrong here? Peter also disagreed with the way 
the purpose of God was going to be worked out through Christ. What Peter objected to what his, was his good friend having to go through a scourging, a crucifixion, painful, shameful, a terrible way to die for one so good, especially. Peter knew that. To suffer all the ignominy, to have Jesus berated by those who were in, in authority, and Peter recognizing that those people who were in the seats of authority couldn't hold a candle to Jesus. And yet these mean men would be sitting in a place where they could actually have him delivered to death. So Peter disagreed with what the Messiah said, God's purpose was, and how it was going to be worked out. Now I think that we can relate to what Peter said. It really was a touching sentiment because he didn't want to see Christ suffer and die, but brethren, the sentiment was wrong. And Christ identified the source of what Peter said as Satan. Now how? How did he isolate that and say that this was from Satan? Well, one way was because it followed the same pattern as Satan's temptations in Matthew, the fourth chapter, offering Christ messiahship without suffering. That's what he offered him. Oh, just bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to suffer, Jesus. You see, that last statement of mine was implied. But Satan knew the scriptures. He knew who Jesus was. And he also knew the scriptures better than Peter did. And so he was tossing in front of Christ the temptation of achieving messiahship, rulership over the world, without having to go through the ignominy of a death, a scourging and death by crucifixion. And I'm sure it was quite a temptation. And probably most of us would not have taken that way. So Jesus recognized it right away. Now we know that that was not God's will. That God's will was that the Messiah first had to suffer and die for men's sin. Where does it say that in God's word? Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53 are very clear. That's what God's will was regarding the Messiah. Now, Peter, when he spoke, was not speaking God's words or thoughts regarding the Messiah. Instead, Peter was speaking, he was mouthing what he would like to see. But God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. What Peter was speaking was the common Jewish conception of a warrior Messiah who would put down the enemies of Judah, elevate Judah over their conquerors, and Judah would become the kingpin of all the nations on the earth. And thus, the suffering Messiah who dies for the sins of man would be bypassed. But God had willed first things first. Now, where in the world did Peter get that idea? You see, here comes Satan back into the picture again. Peter 
was a victim of disinformation regarding God's word, and he became a stumbling block to others. The disinformation came from Satan through his false prophets. Now, this has an application to you and me directly, besides the fact that we see the point that is involved here. Beginning in verse 24, notice what the teaching is. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The teaching that comes immediately after the direct, let's say, ethical application of what occurred in this sequence of events beginning in verse 13 and then ending in verse 23, the application for you and me is like the Messiah, we must deny ourselves. Now put Satan back in the picture. What is he going to do to you and me? Through disinformation and through the affecting of our attitudes, he is going to lead us toward self satisfaction, not self-denial, but self-satisfaction, because self-satisfaction is the essence of sin, and when we sin, we bring upon ourselves the death penalty. And so, in order to get the lesson here straight, Jesus then immediately taught, in order to counteract what Satan was subtly teaching through Peter here, was that the way to the kingdom of God is through self-denial, not self-satisfaction. And so Satan is going to try to persuade us not to deny ourselves, but to fulfill ourselves at the expense of others. Now there's another thing that this can teach us, and that is that very great temptations can come through well-meaning friends. Peter meant well. I am sure it shocked him right out of his socks when Jesus turned and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, right up in Peter's face. Now, I don't think he was angry. I think he was just urgent. But Peter, catch the picture. Now, surely God would not want you to face this kind of a trial, would he? Yes, it just might happen. That the temptation comes through well-meaning people. Now, you see, the reason I'm going through this is that we are particularly vulnerable when we can be led to believe that we are not being treated as we deserve. That was a major ploy that Satan used against Adam and Eve. Oh, has God said? He's withholding from you was the implication. Why, if you do things the way you want, you can have much more. You can be God. We always want more. That's part of human nature. Now, unfortunately, we, I mean mankind, keep making things worse by making the same general mistakes over and over again each generation. Now, get this. It will not end until each individual decides He won't do it, regardless 
of the cost to himself. Denying the self. Now we'll get to something in just a little bit later in the sermon that ties into this. We have to understand that there are some things in life that are beyond our control and that that must be left for God to solve. Now go with me to 1 Peter 2. And we're going to hop, skip, and jump through uh, a fairly major portion of 1 Peter. I want you to be thinking about what is in 1 Peter because it is a very important book to each one of us. In 1 Peter 2 and in verse 11, 11, pardon me, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, self-indulgence, which war against the soul or life, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, being treated unfairly, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God. You see, later on, they don't understand now, in the day of visitation. Now, what we are going through here uh, has to be seen in the overall context of the book. Now, Peter is striving to, to inspire these people to hope in what must have been a very difficult circumstance in their life. The trial that they were having was not one that came and went quickly. It was one, though, that was wearing away at them so that they were having slowly built up with them, within them an attitude of hopelessness. Now, humanly, we always are prone to look for quick solutions to get out from under the burden that's been posed on us. Now, I am not going to tell you that that is wrong, because it's not. However, the problem is that frequently our solution puts us into the fire spiritually. At the same time, it appears to solve the problem physically. Now, by the time Peter gets to the conclusion of this letter, Satan is very much in his thoughts because a Christian can never afford not to give him consideration that he might just be a part, maybe a major part, of the picture of what they are going through. Now, leave through to 1 Peter 5. We'll come back to 1 Peter 2 in just a bit. But in 1 Peter 5 and verses 6 through 9, just very quickly, I'm not going to, to expand them. I just want you to see that when we get to the conclusion of the book that is about or that is telling us what to do in difficult situations when it seems hopeless, we're going through great difficulty. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, the thought is this. Satan may or may not be the cause of the situation. But even if he is not, he is prowling around to take advantage of it, that he might pick us off. You see the roaring lion? Who does the lion most, who are they most likely attack? The strays, the ones who are on the fringes, those who are on the outside, 
those who are not keeping up with the group, and we think of that spiritually, they are people who are simply not with it. They are wearying under the barrage of problems that causes them to begin to separate themselves away. And then Satan, the roaring lion, picks off the strays. Now, he is especially adept at taking advantage of people's feelings. Now, all too often, we are dominated by our emotions rather than facts. Or we might say the truth of God. Now, under that kind of a circumstance, it is very easy for us to get our feelings hurt, ignore the facts, and proceed to lie to ourselves just like Satan did at the beginning of the process. Now, let's go back to 1 Peter 2, and we're going to begin to look at the areas that are covered by him. Now, these are the kind of situations that are tailor-made to make us feel as though we are being put upon, taken advantage of, made to feel less than what we feel that we ought to be. Verse 13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now it's very easy to feel put upon by government, municipal government, state government, national government, but governments in general. They take advantage of us. They put the pressure on us through taxes. They won't allow us to do things that we feel that we ought to be able to do. They give us traffic tickets, all kinds of things. But government can be a means through which we begin to feel as though we are taking advantage of. Then in verse 18, he covers a situation regarding a person's employment. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So our boss takes advantage to us uh, of us. He doesn't pay us what we are worth. He makes us work longer hours than we feel that we should. He puts the pressure on in regard to the Sabbath or to the holy days or to keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. He gives us the kind of work that is beneath our dignity. He gives us the kind of work for which we are overqualified and we don't feel challenged. There are all kinds of ways that we can feel pressure from employers. Now, in these situations, Peter is not saying that we should compromise at all. But he is saying, for the Lord's sake, that is, out of regard for him, we are to control ourselves so that we don't rebel. Now, to allow our emotions to have free reign to the point of rebellion, Peter is showing us is the same as calling God into account. That is, we are at least indirectly, indirectly telling him that he doesn't know how to run his creation. Now, look at verse 19. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, you see, for the Lord's sake, one endures grief, 
suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently, for when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God, for to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now let me make this clear, that Peter is not saying that the commendable thing is the suffering, but the commendable thing is that you are submitted to God's will, and that you are suffering not because you did something wrong, but because you did something right. That's what's commendable, and in addition to that, you are not striking back. You see, that's what your emotions would lead you to do. Now, beginning in verse 21, we see there that Jesus is the model we are to follow. Now, we know that. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That is, a clear recognition in the life of Jesus that there are some things that must be left for God to take care of. And so he did not strike out at these people. He turned the other cheek, kept his mouth shut, bit his tongue, and did not strike back. Now, what is God saying here in this whole thing? It is a recognition from God that life is unfair. What we have to understand is that life is unfair largely because of the way men have chosen to deal with problems. It is the responsibility of the Christian to deal with problems the way God says to deal with them. But remember, Satan is still in the picture here, and he is going to move us to try to deal with problems his way. That won't be good. It'll keep the problems rolling. Okay, now, after the end of chapter 2, Peter moves on to marriage, another place where we can feel oppressed. Now, we won't go through uh, that. I am just trying to get the overview here. And this is a place where our emotions are very severely affected. Because things happen caused by or we are affected by one that we feel should never do what they have done to us. And perhaps emotionally, the most volatile of all the situations here. It is also the one we are probably most likely to be involved in, and also the one we are most likely to let our own emotions run amok. And so he tells the husbands, especially, in the way to treat their wives, he says that your prayers may not be hindered. Now again, remember, First Peter 5, Satan is still in the context of the writing here, unmentioned. But he is in Peter's thoughts. And that is surely some kind of a situation there that Peter is going to try to take advantage of. Cut people off from God? The epitome of his efforts. Now we move into chapter 3 a little bit further. He says finally in verse 8, all of you be as one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Notice the advice. Do not these things require a great deal of control, a rejection of the feelings that Satan may be in the background trying to stir up? Loving 
tender-hearted, courteous, not returning evil for evil. That's what Satan would want you to do. Or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Really talking here about turning the other's cheek, is he not? I never want to get too far in this sermon without reminding you that Satan is always trying to move us, motivate us, guide us, lead us towards self-satisfaction in any circumstance. And if you are in a position, a circumstance, in which you are trying to defeat somebody, I would have to say he's got hold of you. Because Satan is competitive. Now think about that. Let's go on a little bit further. Verse 13. Who is he who will will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. See, here's the... Here's the advice. Sanctify means set him apart. It means, in this case, make God the focus of your thinking. Make God the focus of your approach to life. Make God the focus of the circumstance that you find yourself in here. Now, is that not what Peter forgot back there in in Matthew 16? The disinformation was the focus of Peter's response to Jesus. Not God's thoughts. If God's thoughts, if God's word had really been sanctified in Peter's heart at that time, he never would have said what he did. He would have said something like, yes, Jesus, I understand. That's what the scripture says. But he disagreed with God. Now, when one sanctifies God in his heart, then the word of God becomes the focus. Not the word from the spirit of this world. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness or with gentleness and fear. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, we'll... If I get that far in this sermon, we are going to see another reference to this, only this time by the Apostle John, because Peter is writing here to show us how far the model Jesus went in suffering unjustly. Well, it's a, it's a high standard, but he went all the way to the death without giving in to his emotions, his feelings, and allowing Satan to get a hold of him and think that God was being unfair or unjust in what he was causing or allowing Jesus to go through. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, feelings, desires, but for the will of God. Jump to verse 12. Beloved, do not think it is strange concerning the fiery or painful trial which is to try you 
as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, I think that that's far enough. I don't think that we need to go any further. But looking at that again in the light of chapter 5 and verses 6 through 8, and understanding that, that Peter is writing with his thoughts on Satan in the background and the possibility that he is a part of our feelings because it is natural for us to feel that we are being taken advantage of or not treated as we should. Our emotions begin to run wild, and that is tailor-made for Satan to take advantage of because that's what he fell prey to. So either he will try to move us in that direction, or if it begins to happen even without him, then he will take advantage of that situation and make sure that he will affect our emotions. Now let's go to Jude the sixth verse. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time about on this. Jude 6. But in the context here, we have a pattern established by demons. And Jude is attacking false prophets, and thus men and demons are kind of interwoven in the context. And there are three sins that he indicts these false prophets for, and that's mainly what I want to pick from here. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Okay, now the three sins that he indicts them for are, number one, lust. They defile the flesh. That is, allowing a feeling to take one over the edge into sin. Number two was rebelliousness. They flout authority in general, but primarily that of Christ. It is something that is hidden in the Greek there, but that word authority is really lordship. And it is a word that is normally used in the sense of referring to Christ and his lordship over us. And number three is disrespect or disregard of spirit beings. Now that becomes clearer in verse 9, which we did not read. But for the lack of time, I am not. Now this number three is kind of interesting because he is saying in effect that it is not that these false prophets will not talk about Satan, but rather it is, well, it's a rather gratuitous despising or denigrating of angelic powers, indicating in their preaching that it's not something that we need to be concerned about, kind of sidestepping the issue. Now, you know why they would do that, because they're being led by a false spirit. And so they, they downgrade this through the preaching, as though it is something that we do not need to be concerned about. 
Now this is clearly seen in the Protestant world. Largely the Protestant world, especially the mainline uh, denominations, have almost gone to the place where they almost universally agree that there really is no such thing as Satan, the devil, or demons. That's how successful they have been out there. Now on the other hand, there are the evangelical groups in Protestantism who will talk about such things as twisting Satan's tail. Oh, we're going to put down the devil tonight. You run into these things in their tent shows that they put on, in their evangelistic campaigns, but you see what they are doing? They are putting Satan into a position where they seemingly have power over him. They're so deceived. Now, the truth in regard to Satan is somewhere in between. And hopefully the true church and God's people will have that truth. They will understand that, yes, Satan is. Yes, he is powerful. But yes, because of God, they do have power over him in that they can reject. We are not puppets on a string, and he cannot pull our strings unless we give him the opportunity. And if we're able to see it, we don't have to submit to him. Now, I wanted you to see that because Jude is telling us signs to look for in preaching or in false ministers, that there will be a denigrating of Satan and his demons. There will be, not to the same extent in in every individual, but there will be indications of lust, that is, allowing feelings to take one over the edge into sin, and they will flout the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go to 2 Peter. This time, in chapter 2, in verse 1. 2 Peter 2, in verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Peter brings it home very clearly right into the church. There will be false prophets among you who will secretly, now notice what he says here, secretly bring in destructive heresies. Well, this is very interesting because if this were translated, this word secretly, into the closest English synonym, it would have to be the word smuggle. See, they smuggle in. That is so interesting to me. Cunning deceit. The word literally means they bring it alongside. That is, they present this heresy in such a way as to make it appear favorably with the truth. Oh, it's just a refinement. We're not really changing anything here. You understand that, don't you? We're not really changing it. It's just a refinement, a clarification. Let's go on. Even denying the Lord who bought them, One denies the Lord by failing to submit to him in obedience. If the doctrines gradually begin to be changed, then submission to Christ is going to be put on different terms as well and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways. Now that word destructive, will translate into the English word pernicious. Now, that word means deadly. We hear it most frequently 
in terms, in a medical term, pernicious anemia. Now, the thing that is so interesting about this is that it may appear innocent, but all the while it is destroying life. That is, it is something that is not, that gives the appearance of being not overtly or openly dangerous, but all the while it is undermining one's health. And of course, he's talking about spiritual health. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness. You can tie that to Jude 6 and about the, uh, through 9 about the lust. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Now, this is kind of interesting because what he is saying is that they turn the church into a commercial operation. They turn the church into a commercial operation. Now, the reason is because Peter says that these are men of evil ambition. They are covetousness. And their primary object is success in argument, not truth. And the changes are made in order to exploit. Back to the commercialism. And so that's why the feigned words or the deceptive or phony arguments. Now, we won't go through the whole context here, but I believe I mentioned to you in the sermon last week that we here in the United States especially have been conditioned to be tolerant. But if we would read completely through 2 Peter 2 and Jude, the whole book, we would find it very clear that God is not tolerant of this kind of thing. We are tolerant because we have, have lost or we never had a sense of the diabolical danger of Satan's false teaching. It's leading people to death. And as a nation, we have become dulled to the distinction between, between truth and falsehood, not only in terms of right and wrong and behavior, but also in terms of ideas or concepts as well. Now, if we went on here to verse 9, we would see Peter says that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Because he very clearly understands that Satan is somewhere in the picture here, and he wants us to be encouraged, to be filled with hope, because these people, though they appear to be gaining strength or whatever, are still under God's control, and he knows how to deliver his people from their schemes, even as he delivered Noah and Lot and others in the past from the schemes that were going on in those cities. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians, because we need to begin to narrow this subject down and look at this from the standpoint of a church or, let's say, a congregation. Now in order to get this the most clearly, I believe, we have to remember the principle that John gave us in 1 John 4 and verse 1 regarding the Antichrist and about testing the spirit or the spirits and how the spirits, or a spirit or these spirits, are influencing a man who in turn influences other men. 
Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those who are of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of St. Cephas, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This same book says in chapter 14, 33, that God is not the author of confusion. And yet it's very obvious that here is a church that is confused and is divided and is fighting one another. Cliques had arisen and they were struggling for power within the congregation. God didn't do that. Who did? Now, Satan does not come into the picture in 1 Corinthians. However, Paul does say in chapter 2 and in verse 12 that there is a spirit of this world. But Satan does come into the picture in a fairly large way in 2 Corinthians. Now, we have to look at 1 and 2 Corinthians as a unity. Paul wrote the one in response to the household of Chloe telling him these things. Perhaps they wrote a letter. Then after writing 1 Corinthians, a little bit of time went by, and then they wrote a letter back to Paul again, explaining some of the things that had occurred, and Paul wrote 2 Corinthians back to them in response to the letter. Now, there was no 3 Corinthians as far as we know, and so either the the problem was resolved or God decided not to carry it any further than that. And so it gives us a very good picture. Satan was in the picture. He was causing the division. He was causing the confusion. He was causing the fighting that was going on. Now in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, you don't have to turn it to it, just write it down, and I, I will just read it to you quickly lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. In chapter 4, and in verses 3 and 4, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel in the of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Very clearly he's talking about Satan. In chapter 10, And verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Hey, brethren, we're fighting a spiritual war. And in chapter 11, and in verse 13, for such workers, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostle of Christ, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. Now, in addition to this, both James and 1 Peter conclude their books 
with an admonition regarding Satan. John speaks of the Antichrist. Second Peter and Jude both speak of fallen angels. And I mention these things because I want you to see the apostles were not unmindful of his influence on the church. And neither should we be. Satan had succeeded in putting the Corinthian church into confusion. Confusion about doctrines, confusion about moral issues, confusion about church policy. And regardless of the central issues, the fruit of his involvement is marked all through the letters. Instead of there being the gentle meekness and love and peace of God's spirit, there was a great deal of self-justifying, self-righteous pride, leading to bad feelings and attacking of one another. Now in 1 Corinthians 8, in verses 1 through 3, now concerning those things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Now perhaps these seemingly innocuous words are really the central issue in this whole book, or even books, because this was the sin that led Satan into his separation from God's government. He got puffed up about himself. These people were puffed up about how much they knew. And Satan thought so much of himself, he became so twisted in his thinking, he attacked. Now, we don't attack God directly. This book shows us we attack each other. And therein lies the problem. We attack each other through gossip, through rumors, through accusations, and things of that nature. We begin to draw up lists in our mind of the faults of others that offend us. And the result is we begin to withdraw from these people and we won't associate with them. You see, the division begins to occur because these people offend us. And we will say to ourselves, well, they were mean to me, or they aren't intelligent enough, or they have some kind of peculiar characteristic. They wear garish clothing, or they have strong opinions about unimportant things. Now, I'm not saying that these things are right or good. I am saying that anyone ought to be able to, or I'm not saying that we, one should be able to do his own thing at any time, anywhere, and we should be tolerant of it. I am only saying that Satan can, if he is given the opportunity, lead our mind to find reasons that we will not associate with others. Reasons that have nothing at all to do with sin. Satan is at work. Now, if it continues unabated, I mean the feeling, then we will eventually get to the place where we will withdraw from fellowship altogether. Now, it won't happen quickly, necessarily, and it won't happen except in gradual ways. Maybe we'll stop attending Bible study, 
where we'll begin to find reasons not to come to Sabbath services. Or we will come late to services and leave early. Satan is slowly but surely moving us toward self-indulgence, you see, rather than love. Now, we will end on this thought. Do you realize that in the biblical sense that hate is not the opposite of love? Self-centeredness is. And hate is merely one expression of self-centeredness. Now, when I give my next sermon on Satan, we will, at least generally, pick up with this thought. Maybe not immediately at the beginning, but we need to understand the direction that Satan is moving us, and that is towards self-centeredness, self-indulgence, where we will not deny ourselves, where we will operate our lives at the expense of God or others, and we have to begin to be able to see that this is the direction that our mind is being led.